Being a chaplain at a Christian college with around 1,700 students is a bit of an adventure all the time. And about my third year on the job, I've been there four years, uh, it's, it's interesting because I pastor 1,700 18 to 25-year-olds from all around the world, but mostly from the U.S., and they, they live on campus, 98% of them, and so they don't leave. They never go home, and, uh, and that's cool. I go home and, and try to leave every once in a while. They're always high energy, for the most part, until the end of the semester when the papers are on them and, and tests and exams and things. But they're never without this drive and passion to serve the Lord. Uh, technically, all the students at Gordon say that the Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. I know that the people are along the, the various spectrum of depth in that walk with Christ and where they might be, and we are great to meet people where they're at. But about my third year, I did a series on Luke called all in unexpected encounters with Jesus. So I took accounts in Luke where people were surprised by an encounter with Jesus. Uh, guys dropped this man down to Jesus' feet and surprise, um, they ripped your roof off and now you've got someone you have to heal. All in was the name of the series. And I get a call on a uh, Saturday evening from one of the students who had my cell phone number and he said, Tom, I think I did something really bad. And I said, what'd you do? And he said, well, here's what happened. I was in the student center on Friday night. And I was sitting there with some friends at a booth, as it's also where people eat their meals. And I felt God telling me that I needed to prove that I was all in for Jesus. And I said, okay, that sounds cool. What, what, what did he tell you to do? What, what was God speaking to you about? He said, well, here's what God told me to do. God told me to take off all of my clothes and run around the student center naked to prove that I didn't care what people thought about me and that I was all in for Jesus. And I'm on the phone going, oh, no, what happened? What happened? What happened? Please, you did not do this. Did you really do this? I said, what would you do? Well, I asked my buddies if, if I should do this. Is this from Jesus? Uh, what'd they say? Well, of course they said it was from Jesus. <laughs> well, what'd you do next? Well, I went to the bathroom, and I took off all my clothes. And I felt God telling me, open and run. And he opened, and he ran. And he ran around the student center, and he came back to the bathroom, and they put on his clothes, and he went and sat down at the booth. You guys look horrified, I know. It's a fun job. And I said, well, did the campus police come over and arrest you? No. Did anyone see you? Yeah. Well, what was going on in your mind? He said, I don't know. I don't think it was from God. I said, nah, I don't either. <laughs> but let's pray about it right now, and we'll talk tomorrow. So I prayed about it on the phone with him, and I, he called me the next day, and he said it wasn't from God. And I said, really? How would you come to that? And he said... Well, God wouldn't want me to do something like that. I said, yeah, good, good. I'm glad you came. I said, here's the thing. Next time God tells you to do something, I want you to find someone who's been a Christian for at least 20 years, and I want you to have a conversation with them. Keep my cell phone number on speed dial. I'm here. And I know, I know that's an, a sort of a horrifying, silly story, but it does represent the kind of ministry that I do. And 
you know, I, I felt like sometimes at IPC I had to say to you guys, please go visit the sick in the hospital. Go, go. And you go, but I've got a board meeting and I've got my family and I've got, and that's cool. I get it. We're all busy. At my job, the students sneak into the ICU when their friends are in medically induced comas and they tie balloons on the end of the bed and the parents have to come to me and say, please, your child, your students are going to kill my child if they bring diseases into the... And I say, oh, I know. We'll cut it in half, guys. Cut it in half. A lot of passion, not much maturity sometimes, but I love them. <laughs> I love them. And, and I, I wouldn't want it any other way right now in my life. And, and uh, so that's a little picture of where we're at. So hopefully you get to know a little who I am and you get my style of preaching right now. I love, I've preached more sermons in this building than any place else in the world. And I, that still holds true. Seven years preaching here every Sunday night was a, an amazing ministry opportunity. And the walls still scare me because they're dangerous. Be careful of these walls. Um, it, I brought back these flashbacks of rubbing my knuckles against those, those knobbly walls. And the floor is still the same, and it's beautiful. And the people, a lot of you are people I know. Some are new faces, and I'm so delighted that you're here. And um, so I want to walk you through Luke chapter 15 this evening. And Sam, thank you so much for this opportunity as well. I know um, it's, it's, hard, it's a, a big thing to trust the pulpit to someone else. And I could, I could say anything I want up here, and hopefully I won't say anything that will embarrass this church. But... A while back, and I was actually a pastor here when this happened, I went on a hike in Glacier National Park, Montana, which pray for right now, it's on fire, but my brother-in-law, and my, my wife is from Glacier National Park area, Whitefish, Montana, and so when we met, I married into this Montana family, and my brother-in-law is a family practice doctor out in Montana, and he wanted to take me on a hike. Um, actually, let me show you a couple pictures. I was just there a few weeks ago with my family. That's Glacier National Park, and it's absolutely beautiful. That's bear grass right there, and, and the bears don't eat it. They just call it bear grass. And if you flip forward one slide here, that's a little bit more of Glacier National Park. And then there's one here. I did this hike. That's Malia, Lori, and then Annie is right up there on that ledge, the second. So Malia, my wife, and then Malia, then Annie. And you guys all know that Annika. That's Annika up there. And that was an 11.8-mile hike with 2,000 feet of elevation gain that those girls did, and they were rock stars and champs. But John, my brother-in-law, decided to, he wanted to take me on a hike. And we grabbed our day packs and our bear spray. Not hairspray, but bear spray. Where's our Canadian friend? He knows about bear spray. This is a giant size thing of red pepper, like, Mace. Imagine mace in a can this big. You strap it on your, your side and you hope that it doesn't become spice and seasonings for you as the bear eats you like spicy food. And you get some water and he wants to take me on a 20-mile hike in grizzly bear country. You're not the top of the food chain. And he said, it's, it's this beautiful hike. It's called Floral Park Traverse. And it's got flowers in the name. How could it be bad, right? And, and so I... I'm a little nervous, though, because this hike really isn't for beginners. Listen, this is a, a, now with the magic of Google, you can find out about these things. But listen to what I Google. I found this guidebook on the Internet that describes Floral Park. I wouldn't have done the hike had I read this. Floral Park has grown to have a dubious reputation in the park, in Glacier National Park. It is unfortunate because it has been featured in magazines next to things that are just, quote, day hikes. 
This has allowed first-time visitors and weekend warriors to address it just like another outing. It has claimed lives. Please don't ever attempt this trip alone. Oh, boy. The wildflowers are abundant, the views are spectacular, but the hike is brutal. 4,000 feet of elevation gain, 7,000 feet of descent in 20 miles, exposed ledges, loose scree, uh, really hard to navigate, and it's in the heart of grizzly territory, so you're not the top of the food chain, as I said, and, and that's scary in and of itself. And this was before cell phone reception, and still there's no cell phone reception there, no GPS reception. You're out in the middle of nowhere. Halfway through this hike, we started feeling a little bit like things were, were, were going well, and then we were told to skirt the edge of the glacier and follow that till we get to the trailhead and then climb out of this one particular canyon that we were in. So we skirted the edge of the glacier, but there was no trail at the edge of the glacier. And I looked at the guidebook that my brother-in-law was using, and it was published in, like, 1972. <laughs> Has anything happened in our environment since 1972? Yeah, the glacier receded quite a bit. And so we're left looking for this trail, so we realize we need to go back the, to the right, down following where the glacier was 20 years ago. 30 years ago, and then we could, we could do this. And we finally got out. But I have never felt more terrified and lost at that moment than in my, ever in my life. Have you ever felt lost? I mean, really lost. I grew up in a home where we went to church on Christmas and Easter, and we prayed as a family when we needed a parking spot at the mall. Lord, please give us a parking spot and make it one that we don't have to walk very far because... We just don't want to have to walk very far. And if it can be wide enough so I don't get door dings, that would be awesome too. Now, this isn't being recorded, is it? Because I don't want my mom to hear it. I just said, no, I'm just kidding. I thought I was a good kid. And in high school, I thought I was better than maybe the worst kid in the school. I was bad, but I wasn't as bad as Scott, who was really bad, or Ryan. They were, they were really bad in my high school. I'll tell you stories about them sometimes. I thought I could get to heaven by being better than the worst. And that was, that was my lost days. And then my young life leader, he told me that I was lost. Has anyone ever told you that you're lost? That's a scary feeling. So as an 18-year-old, this was a sobering moment. And, and I knew that he was right. And that's what scared me. So when Malia he was here in Zurich, we were praying. And she was three years old at the table. And she prayed, Lord, please help find all those people who have run away from you and are lost. And it was the sweetest prayer. And, and uh, I owe her a dollar because every time I mention her in the sermon, I have to pay her a dollar. But, but I was really proud of her. It's worth, it was worth a dollar just to tell that story. But people who have never heard the name of Jesus Christ are lost, folks. And there's good news in this because Christianity, actually, if it's summed up in the, the words of Jesus from Luke 19.10... It would be that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's in Luke 19.10. I think if you were asked to describe the heart of the gospel in one sentence, that's where I would start. That Jesus came to seek and save the lost. So this evening, we're going to look about how Jesus feels about lost things. So look at Luke 15, chapter 1. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 15, and we're going to start with verse 1. Everyone there? All right. You guys are so much faster than college students. And you're a lot 
more clothed. Um, <laughs> now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Did you see who's in that crowd? The tax collectors and sinners. I'm going to move this down because I'm getting all poppy. Whew. All right. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now keep your Bibles open. We're going to walk through this passage. It's a story. I want to walk through it inductively. I don't want to read the whole thing at one time. Three of the most important stories or parables that Jesus ever told were in response to these words, and that's very important for us to, to, to realize here. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were muttering. Is that ever a good thing when anyone mutters? No, it's not. Because in the first century, sharing a meal was considered the deepest form of fellowship. Eating together meant that you accepted the person you were eating with. So, therefore, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law assumed Jesus eating with sinners probably meant that he was a sinner too, or he would at least condone their sinful actions. Either way, they did not like the fact that this guy welcomes sinners and eats with them. You know what's a good thing that Jesus welcomes sinners and eats with them? How many of you in here are sinners? I hope to see every single one of your hands. Andy? I know. No, just kidding. All right. Jesus hears all this mumbling and muttering because he is the Son of God, and he can hear that stuff. And he says, Let me tell you a story. Did your parents ever have that phrase, that line, that when they said it, you knew you were in trouble? I am not afraid to pull this car over. Thomas Vincent Haugen, whatever it was, you knew you were in trouble. Whenever you read in the Bible, Jesus saying, let me tell you a story, you're in trouble. You're in trouble tonight, folks, and I mean it. This is not going to be easy. What that means is that that story has the power to grab us and move us and challenge us. Stories have the power to plow through our hard hearts to get to something much deeper inside of us. Stories are like dynamite that blast away the rock and allow the tunnels to be dug in Switzerland. Do they still have tunnels here? I think there's a few. Stories grab our attention and hold it tightly so that we put down our phones and we, we lean into what's about to be said. My daughters have never once crawled into my lap and said, Daddy, tell me some facts. Please, Daddy, I need some facts. But they have crawled into my lap just about every day that I've had children and said, Daddy, tell me a story. Daddy, tell me another story. Again, tell me the same story. Tell me that story when boom, boom, boom. We've had a lot of stories this weekend that have been fun to remember and recap. But the stories Jesus crafted are called parables. And a parable is an everyday story that drives home a point by illustrating from a familiar situation from everyday life. So it's a a fictional story with a real-life punch. Jesus' stories entertain us, they move us, they motivate us, and they transform our lives. But whenever we hear this, let me tell you a story I want you to to brace yourself. It's actually an Old Testament formula, too. Do you remember when Nathan came to King David? He didn't say, hey, Dave, I know what you've been doing with Bathsheba and this whole murdering her husband thing. I know about that. You're in big trouble, mister. Even though you're the king, I'm just going to lay it straight. 
he said, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a story about this man who's wealthy and had this really loved, you know, or this man who's poor had this much-loved lamb, and, and it, it was taken by this rich person who had lots of lambs. And David gets the message loud and clear that it was him that was in trouble. So when Jesus wants to teach us a difficult truth, something that's really hard for us to hear, he says, let me tell you a story. And Jesus is so unhappy with the mumbling and grumbling of the religious leaders in this particular chapter of the Bible that he doesn't say, let me tell you one story or let me tell you two stories. He says, let me tell you three stories. And I believe they need to stay together. And they don't stay together very often. You don't hear stories preached on the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the prodigal son at the same time. But they're all in the same context. So let's read Luke Chapter 15, verses 3 to 7. Let me open this here. I think it's up on the screen if you wanted to look at that right there. So Luke, chapter 15, beginning with verse 3. The light in here, I really, I can't even read the red letters. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So imagine you're the shepherd, and it's your job to watch a hundred sheep. One night, one single sheep wanders away from the safety of your flock. The next morning, you're out there counting, like, one, two, 98, 99. Oh, dear. It's gone again. Have you ever lost a pet? I have. You begin the immediate search and rescue mission for your dog. Notice I didn't say that other animal. You, you, you start searching for your dog, and you might argue that cats are too smart. They never get lost. So if you're a cat lover, don't be offended. I wasn't trying to offend anyone. Cat lovers love to email me when I do that, so i got to be careful. You post signs around the neighborhood. You wander around. You're calling out, where are you? Fido, Chile, where are you? Come home. And what happens when you find your lost dog? You can't contain your joy. You're excited. You're happy. I can't believe it. We found our dog. This is wonderful. You run and you tell your neighbors. Well, this is what happens in heaven when one lost sinner returns to God. Jesus says, start the party in heaven today because one more person has been saved. Anyone listening to this story would have been excited when the lost sheep was found and returned to its owner. But these people are getting upset because Jesus is hanging out with tax collectors and sinners and lost people. They have their priorities all messed up. So that was story number one. Look at 15, 8 to 10. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. You see, there's a pattern here. 
Have you ever lost your phone? <gasps> Gasp! When I lose my phone, I can't think about anything else. I, I'm, it's like that siren. I'm tearing things apart. I'm running around the house. Lori, where's my phone? Call my phone. Please, dial my phone. Someone dial my phone. Oh, no, it's on silent. Is it shaking? Does anyone feel anything shaking? Stop. No one move. Bzz, bzz, bzz. Where is it? My phone is gone. You freak out. You find my phone app. Where is it? Oh, it's in the house somewhere. That does not help. It's on the block. Okay, where is it? Whatever it is, you're looking for your phone. You're tearing it apart. And when you find it, you kiss it. And you hold it. And you love it. And you put it in the charger. This woman turned her house upside down, searching every nook and cranny for her lost coin. And when she finally found that coin, she did the happy dance and started hugging everyone around her because she was so excited that she found this lost coin. The coin was valuable. Our phones are valuable. We want these things because when we find them, we're excited about that. And look at the, this increasing value of these lost things that's coming up, the coin, the sheep. And now we get to the pinnacle of these three stories where Jesus is trying to tell us that we've got our priorities all mixed up. And it's a story about two lost sons and one father who goes to great lengths to welcome those sons into his home. Look at Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 24. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. That's the G-rated version of that. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. The youngest of two sons decides that he wants to be free from his family. So he rehearses his speech. He goes to the father and he asks for his share of the inheritance. When the son asks the father for half of the family inheritance before the father is dead, it's the equivalent of the son saying to the father, I wish you were dead. The proper response of the father would have been, I want you to go away to a faraway country, but you are not taking my credit card with you, son. Goodbye. In Jesus' story, the father splits the inheritance in half without question, and the listeners are shocked at the father's actions. Fathers don't behave like this. At first, life in the faraway country is just wonderful for the younger son, but he squandered all his money on wild living, so he's completely broke, and then famine spreads across the land. It's a story, and Jesus is just amping this story up. There was very little food or water for anyone. In order to survive, this good Jewish boy is, is forced to do what? To care for pigs? Not a cool job in Jewish culture. It is the most degrading job possible. We have a show in the U.S. called Dirty Jobs, and this would be like the worst of the worst. Good Jewish boys don't hang out at pig farms, and they never take jobs feeding pigs, and they don't long to fill their stomachs with pig food, but this is what this guy has reduced himself to. 
The boy has sunk so low that eating leftover from the pig's dinner is, is something that he's dreaming about. Then the story says, when he came to his senses, he started thinking about home. It doesn't say when the father got in his parental helicopter. You know about helicopter parenting? We have drone parenting now, too. You can do that. Helicopter to go and grab that boy right out of that pigsty because that is not where my son needs to be. It doesn't say that in the story. It says, actually, think about this. If, if the father had done that, let's just go hypothetical here. If the father had said, you know what, I'm going to go get him. He's, he's, look, he's hit bottom. The poor guy's in the pigsty. This is not good. I don't want him there. And, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get him out. What would the son have done? Thank you, Dad. You rescued me. You're the greatest dad ever. The, the son would have gone, you are ruining my life, Dad. I was just about to make it big in pigs. I was going to start the runaway hot dog company. I got the whole business plan right here, and you're ruining my life. Thanks a lot, Dad. But when he came to his senses, when he came to his senses, why didn't the father go after the son? Because the son had to want to come home to the father because love is love when it has a choice. And the most remarkable character in the story is the father. He broke his father, the, the, the father's heart is broken and the father is waiting on the porch for his son to return. The son comes to his senses and he starts out for home. And when the, son, the father sees the son from a great distance away, he, he, he gets up and he runs down the road. Folks, men did not run in this culture. That, and, and the people listening to this story are going, Jesus, this is not a good way to tell a story. What is wrong with this story? But he runs, and the son sees the father from a distance off running towards him. And I don't know if he's, oh no, he's running towards me. This can't be a good thing. What is happening here? But the father is running with his arms out, and the son starts to get this speech out. I- I've sinned against heaven and against earth and against, and I'm no longer even worth The father stops him. Let's listen. Get a robe. Put a robe on this boy. He's got no robe. He's get a ring. He doesn't have a ring in his finger. He needs a ring. Go and kill the cow. Bessie is dead. This is going to be amazing. We're having barbecue. All you can eat barbecue. It's going to be awesome. My son that is dead is now alive. And what was lost was found. And this story, folks, is if it doesn't get to you, then I don't think We're grasping it in the proper way. People listening to this story would have been shocked at the father's response. Anyone in the first century crowd would have expected a completely different response from the father. They would have expected the father to disown that son. But the son in Jesus' story has dishonored the father and he gets a very different reaction. And then you'd think this would be a fitting end and the curtain would come down and everyone would go, wow, that was the weirdest story I've ever heard, Jesus. What was that all about? But there's another son who is lost in plain sight that we need to talk about. The older son is in the field, hardworking and dependable, always by the father's side, keeping the farm going. He's a good boy. And when he comes near the house, he hears music and he sees dancing and he he smells this smell of of beautifully roasting T-bone steaks and he, he just... Like looks at this party and goes, what is going on? And he doesn't like the answer when he says, what kind of party is this? He says, well, your brother's back. My brother's back and my dad threw a party. Are you kidding me? And with great love and humility, the father seeks after the older son and he sits down with him and he, and he says, everything I've ever had was yours, son. I just want you to be 
with me. The lost son represents the people who are so concerned about the scandalous nature of the gospel and God's amazing love and grace that they miss out on the joy of that love for themselves and for others. They miss out on that joy. The religious leaders grumbled and muttered because Jesus had the audacity to welcome sinners and eat with them. They were lost in plain sight. In response to their muttering, Jesus says, let me tell you three stories about the joy of lost things being found. And I'm going to start small so you can get this. And then I'm going to go a little bit more so you can get this. And then I'm going to go really high for you because you really need to get this, folks. The ancient Jewish society was a highly visual culture. And if a son dishonored the father like this son dishonored his father, there would be a ceremony that occurred. A ceremony that is, I have a slide that I'll show you in the Hebrew what this ceremony is all about. But this ceremony was dramatic and it was visual because of this visual culture. It was called the kezazah. And it literally meant the cutting off. If a child dishonored the father and returned. This is in real life, folks. This is not a story anymore. The elders and the entire community would gather together at the town gate. And as a symbol of how destructive this child had been, how he had broken the relationship with his family, how he had broken the relationship with his father, how he had broken relationship with the community because relationships were communal, the entire community would gather together right there at the gate And they would take a clay pot. And they would take this pot and they would break it at the father's, the son's feet. And they would say, you have broken everything that is good. You have broken trust. You have broken community. You have broken your father's heart. The damage you've caused is beyond repair. Like this shattered pot, it will not be put back together again. You are cut off. You are Kezazah. You are no longer welcome in this community. Have you ever felt this kind of cutting off from people in your life? Have you ever cut others off in this way? Do you know why the father ran? Do you know why the father humbled himself and pulled up his robe and started running towards that son? Because he did not want this to happen. This is a mess. And i got to clean it up now. (laughs) Actually, maybe I'm going to let you help me with that in a second. As a reminder. The father runs to keep this disgrace from happening to the son. And it is a dramatic disgrace, folks. The Kezazah. Our Heavenly Father has taken our shame through His Son, Jesus, who willingly died on the cross for you and me. This is the Gospel, folks. Jesus took our sins and shame so that we would not have to be cut off. We are not Kezazah. Through Christ, we can be forgiven and restored and accepted. We do not have to fear going home to the Father and confessing our sins no matter what we have done or how many times we have done it over and over and over again. Only the father could restore the status of son in the family. 
We are sinners, and there is nothing we can do to restore our lost relationship with the holy God of the universe. He calls us and waits, and a single step in His direction causes Him to get up and run towards you so that you are not cut off. And He welcomes you back home, and there's a party in heaven when that occurs. And not only does God forgive us, but He takes His shame, our shame, upon Himself. And He lifts off that weight that we talked about this morning that we carry on our shoulders, our, our, our past mistakes, and He willingly wipes those away and says, you are free. Look at Romans 6, 5, chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. What mattered most to the father wasn't the younger son's disobedience or the older son's obedience. What mattered most is the presence of his two sons with him in relationship. He wants to be with them. This parable paints a wonderful picture of God the Father wanting a relationship with his lost children. All three of these parables do that. And it doesn't matter if we've messed up horribly in life or we've, we've been unfaithful or faithful serving him. He values us the same and he wants to be with us so much that he died so that we would not be kezazah so that we would not be cut off. It's so easy in this world to get distracted. It's so easy to feel lost from our Heavenly Father. It's so easy to feel lonely. But above all else, God wants a relationship with us. And I imagine you're out there and you're going, well, Tom, I've already got a relationship with him. I'm I'm good. Well, you know what? There are a lot of people out in the city of Zurich who don't. And they need to know that this is not their fate. Because without Christ, this is their fate. They will be cut off. But Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That news needs to be proclaimed to Zurich. That news needs to be proclaimed at the International Protestant Church of Zurich. That news needs to be shouted out from any place you can possibly tell others about that. And maybe you're here tonight going, you know what, I have been running away. And yeah, the pig food looks pretty good right now but I want to come home. I want to come back to a Savior who gets up and runs towards me and stops this shame, stops this cutting off, stops the loneliness. I want a relationship with God, and that can happen tonight. And there are people in this church who love Jesus that want to talk to you. You can talk to Matt. You can talk to Sam. You can talk to Patrick. You can talk to... I'm I'm 99% sure you can talk to Charlie. Yeah, you can talk to Charlie. Absolutely. I love these guys. What will you do today to realign your relationship with God to make it what it was created to be? He's already made a way through Jesus Christ. Will you accept the Father's embrace? Because through Christ we are not cut off. Through Christ we are not broken. And then how will we point people that don't know Jesus 
to the relationship that God wants to have with them? How will we begin to not mutter and grumble when, when people have the audacity to welcome sinners and tax collectors today into this church, into our meals, into our lives? Through Christ, we are not cut off. We are whole, and we are His. I want the band to come back up and play a song, and, and I'm not sure what the next song is, but I think whatever it is will, will work perfectly for this. And I want to invite you, and I'm, I'm, I joked about this earlier, but in all seriousness, I had planned on doing this. I want to invite you to come up here during the song at some point and take a piece of this pot. It's not sharp. It's not dangerous. It's, it's, the, it's pretty safe, I think. Um, but this is Switzerland, and there's like no liability, so we're cool. And I want you to take a piece of this pot and I want you to hold on to it. And I want you to bring it home. And I want you to put it somewhere where you can see it. And I want you to remember that this is not your fate. That you are not kezazah. You are not cut off. You are whole. You are complete. Not by your own strength, but through the grace and mercy and love of Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. And if that doesn't describe you, then I want you to take this pot and I want you to, to bring it to someone that you know loves Jesus and say, how do I fix this? How do I make this not my fate? How do I not be cut off anymore? How do I have a relationship with Jesus Christ that gives me access to the Father, that he, he runs to me and embraces me and holds me? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that we experience what the prodigal son encountered when he returned to the father. But while he was a still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. Lord, may we receive that embrace from you tonight and remember that through Jesus Christ, we are not cut off. We are whole and we are yours. And I pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.